0: Thank you Delta K, Arakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, created in collaboration with the Books 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 podcast, Kavita Bedford talks with Nicole Aberdee about her novel, Friends and Dark Shapes, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com.
1: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Australian Indian writer Kavita Bedford about her debut novel, Friends and Dark Shapes, published in Australia by Text Publishing, And in the United States by Europa editions earlier this year. Before we begin I'd like to say I'm working on Gadigal land and I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respect to their elders past and present. Now very sadly this session was due to be recorded at Byron Writers Festival live in August 2021. As most of you will know the festival was cancelled due to COVID-19 but Books, books, books. My podcast is thrilled to be able to present this conversation with Kavita in collaboration with Byron Writers Festival. So welcome to all of you who are listening. Before we begin, I want to tell you a little bit about Kavita and her career to date. Kavita is a creative writer and editor with a background in anthropology, journalism and literature. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Griffith Review, The Saturday Paper and many other publications. Kavita has won a number of literary prizes, fellowships and grants, including a 2018 Churchill Fellowship in Europe. She is the 2020 to 2021 Westwards Writer-in-Residence at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. She lives and works in Sydney, teaching media and global studies. This wonderful book, Friends and Dark Shapes, has been receiving fantastic reviews, not only in Australia, but also in the United States. And I particularly like this one from the New York Times, which said, Bedford is a talented writer with a wonderful eye for detail and her crisp measured sentences are genuinely impressive. After grief, alienation and loneliness suffuse the novel. The story earns its way towards a sense of hope. Kavita, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. And obviously it would have been beautiful to be with in Byron Bay and with everyone, but it's also so wonderful to have this opportunity.
0: Kavita, could you
1: start by telling our listeners what your book's about?
2: Yeah, so it basically takes place over one year where a young unnamed narrator moves into a share house. And there she's with a group of three other young people who are navigating things like online dating, living in a gentrified suburb, how to deal with politics around race and class, as well as just navigating day-to-day life. But behind the scenes is the undertow. She's grappling with the loss of her father one year after he's passed. So grief suffuses the novel a lot. So before we start to
1: talk about the novel itself, there's something I just wanted to ask you about. I know that you wrote this novel over a period of about five years, and I believe that you started it when you were part of a writer's program called Under the Volcano in Mexico. Could you tell us a little bit about that program?
2: Yeah, it's such a wonderful program. I actually applied to it not knowing a lot about it. I'd received a grant and was really lucky to get that. And was looking to, at the time, actually write, I'd worked in Mexico many years before, and I was looking to write something around Mexico. And so I went there and met this incredible group of people from Latin America, but also America. Um, and the director of the program, Magda Bogan, she works for the UN as well as working in creative writing and has just created the most incredible community of writers and thinkers and critics and journalists and just this 10 day program um, that has such a energy to it and has given me lifelong writing friends, um, but also, you know, people to sort of support and work with. Um, so I highly recommend to anyone who wants to do something like that. Kavita,
1: Friends and Dark Shapes is very much a Sydney novel. It's set in and around Sydney from Redfern, where the share house is, to Bondi Beach, Bankstown, Fairfield, the CBD. It started as a letter that you wrote to Sydney when you were feeling angry at it. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why it was you were feeling angry at Sydney?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, it's sort of been interesting. I've been talking to different states around this topic and some people can really understand why you'd feel angry at Sydney. Um, Yeah it began as a as a letter and I think what I was trying to understand was two things. One was I'd just grown up on a lot of literature about place. I mean I love literature that is set in cities but I was realizing that I had sort of suffused my own coming of age if you will with Cities like London and Dublin and Paris and New York and in many ways I've kind of immersed those more into my being and more into my kind of writing practice than I had around anything that was sort of particularly Australian Um, and part of that was because some of the experiences didn't necessarily speak to my own experiences of coming of age in, in Sydney, like Australian literature sometimes didn't deal with the city in the same kind of manner. Um, often it tends to be sort of a bit more rural in setting or grappling with different kinds of ideas around identity um, and sort of coming from mixed race family and and also migration and various things. I sort of wasn't necessarily at the time I'd started at finding that, um, so echoing in a lot of the literature that I was reading from here. Um, but then another thing was around my own personal reasons where I was seeing a city that I loved greatly and deeply um changing very much before our eyes I think with gentrification but also just the speediness of the process of change I mean cities always change it's part of their you know they're an organism in so many ways they have to but I think the kind of speediness with which things are changing and the rapid pace of it was left me feeling quite alienated from a lot of the the kind of way it was moving into And, you know, in so many ways, Sydney, with all its beautiful enclaves and wonderful kind of spaces, but it's also very much a business centric city. And I think sort of trying to grapple with where do people who don't fit into those Mm. kind of more mainstream narratives, whether it's around kind of, you know, race and identity, or even if just about economics and and being and living in a city, um, it started to make me feel very angry. And I think I was also dealing with my own personal ideas of loss. and what became very interesting to me was this idea of how a place itself imbues or, or how much, you know, we shape a place or does a place shape us? And I found that a really interesting thing because I was sort of interested in this narrator tracking her process of grief and loss along the contours of a city that she's also trying to understand who we actually are in this more modern day kind of capacity. Um, and where it's made up and it's a city made up of so many different people who've lost in very different ways.
1: You said that you never thought you would send your first novel in Sydney, but yet you have. Why did you decide to do that?
2: A lot of it actually came, interestingly, from the writing program I was doing in Mexico, um, but also talking with a lot of writers from other countries. And I initially thought I would write about anywhere but this city, (laughs) Or this country. Um, And it was really interesting. And I think a lot of the time you need distance and you often need to be outside. And there's a very interesting thing that happens around that dynamic of being insider-outsider
1: just so that listeners know, much of this novel was written while you were overseas. When you were in Mexico, you were in Barcelona, you were in London, you were in Berlin, you were in India. And that was my next question. What did it feel like writing about Sydney from afar? And then I, I said, did the distance enable you to see the city more clearly?
2: Well, very prescient question. <laughs> and I yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, I was looking at a lot of writing of expat writers, um, but that doesn't quite capture the same thing as when you're from and born into a city. So, you know, I mean, the classics, the Malcolm Lowry's, the Ernest Hemingway's and, you know, but it it was an interesting thing to actually be from a city to try to look at it with a kind of more anthropological lens, if you will, being part of my training, but also trying to really capture feeling. I felt it was really important to have that kind of more sensory um stuff, but also knowing that you're kind of tied to a place. Um, so it did create a really interesting dynamic and part of it, I think was also having conversations around place with people not from here. Mm-hmm. and it started to help me see personal things I was grappling with around identity, but also around how global so many of our experiences are and You know, we're living in this globalised kind of space where I can talk with people from across the globe sort of around my age group, if you will, and in so many ways our reference points are similar, around Mm. music, around films, around books. Um, And so in one way it's this incredible kind of unifying force where, you know, i I had a similar coming of age to, say, someone who's living, you know, in in Paris or in America. But then there were also these things that were so incredibly particular to Sydney. And I think it was a bit of a challenge that I wanted to set myself where, and I don't know if it was anger, but I sort of felt like I've learnt the names of streets in New York. I've internalised places that I've never been to and I see no problem in doing that. I love being transported to cities and places that I've never been. And I kind of wanted to know if it was possible to write a very universal kind of story, Mm. but that was set very locally and where I could presume that if a reader doesn't know something, that's okay. I can still include it in language. I can still include it with street names. I can still have a very kind of parochial set while still being incredibly universal. Just
1: as a bigger picture question it seemed to me a lot of these characters are second generation Australians their parents are migrants that is of course your own experience you were born here your father's Australian I gather and your mother is Indian yeah. how important was it for you to tell the stories to tell this story from the perspective of migrants to Australia how important was it for you that their voices should be heard
0: yeah it
2: was very important I think it was a huge launch pad for it um Again, there are a few things where, and I I grappled, you know, I thought about it for a long time before I did it. I wanted it to be mainly second generation. I think there is, you know, and obviously that's my own experience, but I also know stories very much from my family of first generation and they've been, they are being covered, you know, and, and importantly and very much needed. But I wanted to write second generation because I think a very interesting phenomenon (laughs) is occurring with that. Um, And especially because I wanted to write about class and I use that by trying to look at this issue of gentrification um, a bit more closely. And I think the interesting thing with second generation is we were born here. We belong here um, and we feel very, very culturally tied and um, part of this kind of upbringing. But I was kind of intrigued by this idea that many of us have had families that have had to leave places. And many of us have ha- have had families or grown up with stories of knowing incredible sacrifice and loss, but they're not necessarily our lived experience. yet they've kind of imbued their ways into our viewpoints of the world. And now with gentrification, you know many of us come from middle class backgrounds. Um, and I think sometimes the migrant narrative becomes a bit of a kind of you know almost poverty narrative at times. um but a lot of us have come from you know very highly educated middle class families. And we are now participating in the problem. Let's yeah.
1: touch on that notion of gentrification because you deal with that in the novel. There's one particular scene where the unnamed narrator goes to a little shoe shop in Redfern and speaks to a man who I think he originally came from Lebanon and he he started his shop in 1964 and he's still there all these years later. And he tells her about what has happened in Redfern from 1964 when he first moved there to um what it's like now would you like to just tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah I was really interested I guess a lot of the voices that make up the novel um, aren't necessarily characters that that occur throughout the whole thing a lot of them are shopkeepers uber drivers people
1: whose stories aren't always told yes everyday people who are part of the thrumming heart of the city but who we don't hear from all that often.
2: I'm so happy that you picked that up and I wanted this voice really populated when I was thinking of cities I kept thinking of I want it to be populated by voices and voices that aren't just one generation even though it's obviously in many ways coming from the perspective of a generation Um, but I wanted it to be this kind of thronging sense of different sacrifices and different stories and yeah I chose to set it in Redfin which I think has a very unique history to Mm. Australia um, with the Indigenous background as well as this kind of very much in its current present state of gentrification. Mm. Um, But also where the first wave happened and where you had a lot of people from, you know, during the Civil War coming in and that first wave of Italians and Lebanese and Yugoslavians, former, and making up a city at that time or making up a place setting up their businesses like this shoe shop repairs, man. And then you have the second wave occurring kind of now where you have a lot of young professionals moving in. And once again, and it's such an interesting place where, but also a kind of heartbreaking place where Mm -hmm. all these layers of communities and you had at the time of this book, the the forced relocation of Indigenous communities once again happening on this soil, the pushing out of other Mm -hmm. migrant groups And then kind of second generation, hip, young people also participating in that very kind of relocation space. And I was really interested and I feel like gentrification is such a loaded and and fascinating um, occurrence because it's very hard sometimes, you know, you want to blame someone or you want to look at that. And I think one thing in this book was I was trying very hard not to place blame on any one Mm. particular group. Mm. And I wanted it to be that there is no kind of one victim or, you know, and I think sometimes migrant stories can also go into those kind of victim stories naturally in, in many ways needed. But I wanted in this particular story this also to be a story about just to bring up questions of what are we all engaging and participating in as a kind of class and as a community and as a city and whose voices are being pushed out and whose voices do we choose to listen to and how do we listen to each other I suppose was a very big question in it as well and where is that space for silence and empathy and hearing the stories of people that that shape us.
1: Kavita, let's talk a little bit now about the narrator. What do we know about her when the novel begins?
2: So the novel begins with her moving into the share house one year after her father died. And that's set up in the very first line. But the grief itself and the references to the father don't start to unfold. And that story doesn't take shape till kind of the the later third of the novel. And the first kind of half or two thirds really set up about the share house and the dynamics with the um, three other young people that she's moved in with and about the place and sort of collecting, as we've discussed, these voices of different people that populate the city And she works part-time as a freelance journalist. Um, And it sort of allows her to go around, you know, the city asking these somewhat sometimes intrusive questions of strangers. And I needed a a vehicle to allow her to be doing that that wasn't just grief bound. Um, But what unfolds is it very much is about grief and trying to understand stories of people who've lost in very, very different ways um, and she goes around with a photographer to kind of what I term, you know, the lesser kind of frequented parts of Sydney, if you will. Um, and I thought that was really important. And I, I, it's something I'm really passionate about, I guess, is kind of, you know, there's so many different narratives of Sydney um, that, are, that are at place. And I think it's also been really interesting having this book out at the time when we're going through COVID. I mean, I think we've already just seen the very fact of the way the city is kind of divided into two, even just how it's been treated during lockdown. And the stories of Western Sydney and Southwestern Sydney are stories that get either very maligned by the press or they don't actually get representation or real representation from kind of more everyday people who live there. And it sort of feels like it's set up often to be this, it's got a a function of fear um, that allows another part of Sydney to just kind of exist and, and do its own thing um and i felt it was really important to bring those those stories and some of those people which is why i wanted it to be people from the area and not necessarily sort of the narrator telling you what these stories are because um and i based it on a lot of actual interviews and and people that I had spoken to about these issues. We meet some fascinating
1: characters. For example, early in the piece, she she goes out to the, the West and interviews a Syrian woman who runs a hijab shop. And her her mission is very much what yours was, I think, which is to just show the perspectives of everyday people who live in Sydney.
2: Yeah, exactly. She runs a yeah, she runs a fashion store and kind of keeps being coerced to tell stories about, you know, the war and Syria and trauma and grief. And I think it was really important to also show, you know, in this case, this woman actually just wanted to make kind of modest fashion that was really beautiful and interesting and cool um, to people from Australia as well as, you know, sort of Australian Muslims. Um, those things that get lost, those nuances that really get lost in a lot of these kind of more... Dramatic debates.
1: I want to ask you a little bit about the narrator's position uh, as an outsider in her own city. At one point, she jumps on a train at 11am in the morning and speaks about everyone who lives outside the city's routine hours jumps aboard. And we have that concept of the outsider being referred to in terms of the narrator herself quite a bit. If the narrator, as I've said, was or is an outsider in her own city. Why do you think that is?
2: Mm, That's a really beautiful question. I think I wanted to bring in that sense. And I think what happens a lot with people from uh, sort of diverse backgrounds and and different kind of family experiences is a feeling, yes, of not fully belonging, um, but kind of trapped because you also don't really belong to the the other country, (laughs) Um, So you're part of this fabric and you're part of its blood and bones in so many ways, but you're also not necessarily on board with a lot of those narratives. Um, But I think it's more than just kind of race as well. I think Mm. there is a very strong generational sense as well of being pushed out of a city um, around affordability crisis, around kind of mentalities and, and how to kind of grapple with being part of this. Um, and then I think something also happens that's even greater around cities themselves, uh, where people feel cities are such thronging huge spaces of so many competing jostling needs and and desires and wants and hurts. And how does anyone really belong to a city um, when they're such sort of movable, changeable beasts? And I think I was interested in that thing around a city changing constantly so so you know in a kind of sense of impermanence like what do we actually even attach and belong to and if a city is the closest thing we've got to attaching to is that a is that a true or real thing to even be attached towards
1: I also wondered if to some extent her grief was alienating if it because she she suffers this enormous grief, which you write about very beautifully. She talks about how people swerve to avoid her when they see her. She talks about waking up with an ice cold shiver of dread. Is it also partly her grief that is making her an outsider, like a, if you like, an observer of her own life?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that was, um, a huge part of the book. I kind of partly also wanted to give this space of the share house and the characters, um, a kind of thronging you know very present sort of tense feel um, because I knew that really at the heart I wanted to write about grief and grief is such a fluid and constantly changing state itself but it also does it's sort of the thing that allows you to be very close to death itself so it causes or creates a bit of a haze where you do naturally feel outside of the folds of life and I wanted that it kind of detached observer sense that takes over when you don't feel part of something, um, but also very weighed down by your own sense of, of extreme loss to then sort of really flow into that last part of the book um, or, or to explain a lot of why she has such a detached perspective, mm. you know, and the way she even narrates and talks about these people that are sort of her friends and her housemates is with this constantly watching observational, kind of not clinical, but like there's a tone to it that's quite removed. And I think that that's a really huge part of grief is that you do feel completely removed from it. And, and, you know, there were parts where I felt frustrated. I wanted her to be in amongst the life of things. But that's not what that phase allows
1: for. So let's talk a little bit about the three housemates. Nikki is Australian Cambodian. Sammy is an Australian Palestinian. And Bower wasn't sure what he was. He,
2: he never did, described. Yeah. No,
1: but he works in a guitar shop. Sammy's a lawyer. Nikki works in graphics. And they one of the things that I think you talk about a lot, you say at one point they have group dinners on a Sunday night to replicate some idea of a traditional family. And we have various scenes of them sitting together, talking together about what sort of toilet paper they should use, whether they should buy nice furniture for the house, whether they should hire a cleaner, which is a controversial one, whether they should paint the walls. And I wondered to what extent the share house has become the equivalent of family for unmarried millennials. I also wondered how difficult is it to navigate those share house flatmate relationships?
2: Yeah yeah I mean, I think what was so interesting about it, you know, um when I was beginning to write it, the sharehouse was not part of it at all. So I actually wrote a first draft of this book, um, which was very grief based, heavily, heavily so. And the sharehouse had nothing to do with it, but it still had these observational parts. It still had these kind of its had a lot of the characters, um, but it didn't have this kind of tight unit, if you will, or, and that also allowed for a kind of structural, aspect to it and there are a few reasons I really wanted a share house in it and one is I think that partly partly it's really generational in part um in the sense that it allowed a conversation to occur around what is home and a conversation to occur around what are the milestones actually of coming of age Mm. and you know I've kind of described this book as a coming of age book um But it's so interesting because, I mean, a traditional coming of age book is a much, much earlier stage. It's not kind of your late 20s by any means, it's the teens.
1: There's a great quote. There's a couple of them that I'd noted, but I think this is probably the classic one that, that relates to what you're saying. We have achieved none of the things we should have by our age. No marriage, no property, no city income, no babies, no assets. And another point, we are turning 30 and things don't look like we imagined they would. They describe themselves as aspirational and they do seem to be in this liminal state, don't they, between the traditional coming of age, which we think of as 21, 22, but they're not at the next stage of their lives either where they have mortgages or families or necessarily solid careers. So yeah, talk a little yeah. bit about that state.
2: Yeah, I think it's a really forced liminality. And in some ways it's, it feels, I was really interested in the idea with our generation of what parts would feel like choice and what parts feel like, um, con- constraints and I think a lot of the time we've kind of adopted a lot of the language of a kind of you know it's more our pro-choice and and as if it is this kind of emancipatory model um, and sometimes that comes out of a need and and you know a way to kind of coerce what is actually happening in your own sense of lack of control over a situation and to feel as if you you've got that um, because I think there's a lot of deeper freedoms that are that are not actually able to be self-actualized or realized Um, and I was really interested in the whole idea around home um, and property ownership I mean it is the Australia I mean it's all the papers talk about um, but also it's a very Australian thing you know in many ways there's a lot of other countries that don't have that real sense of one must own a house and I was so interested in the expectation behind that, the privilege behind that, um, but also is it incredibly unfair that one generation isn't allowed to? I, I don't know is the thing, you know. I think it's just such a fascinating issue that that continually comes up and who's locking who out of a homing and, and the economics behind that. Um, and especially then when you have those debates happening on unceded land as well and these debates happening on a much deeper level and where you have migrants coming in who are also part of that dynamic of whose land is whose so i really wanted to explore some of those ideas of of what is land and what is the depth of its meaning and what is ownership over land is ownership about Buying place is ownership around power, is ownership around the experiences that you've had, is ownership around losing love on land or death on land or finding love on land. And I was just really interested in what actually binds us to a place and how we think about those models of what binds us to a place.
1: Mm. Something else that was, I thought, sort of a, a strong theme of the novel was the concept of loneliness. At one point in the book, the narrator says that she writes about this loneliness. Again, another aspect of it, of course, is that it's a product, in her case, of her grief. At one point, she says it's she feels like loneliness is not something she should feel in the age of constant connection. And I wonder if that was another theme that you wanted really to explore, that amongst the busyness of life in a big city like Sydney, there are so many people who suffer from loneliness and perhaps technology, although it's meant to remove that in fact actually exacerbates it.
2: Yeah I mean I, I definitely wanted to talk about loneliness in a city. Um, I was reading also Olivia Lang at the time and a lot of you know amazing writers who, who talk about this and there's something so much more lonely about being around people when you feel alone than just being alone. Um, and I was really interested in the different forms of loneliness that that people have and that we it sort of still feels like it's something taboo to really talk about in an age when we supposedly talk about everything. Um, I felt like grief and loneliness are still the great, you know, we can talk about sex, we can talk about all kinds of aspects, but but there are some things which I really wanted the novel to explore about, like what is allowed to be said still and what isn't.
1: Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't talk very much about loneliness? I think it's connected to shame Mm.
0: still
2: yeah very much so. and it and I guess that's that kind of idea around you know it feels like we're not allowed to be lonely when everything is plugged in and operated. And I think you know it's seen from our I can speak to my generation, from my generation, but also I think seen from all site kinds of aspects of everyone talks about how busy they are. And I'm so interested in, yes, that is that is a flaw, and yes, that many people feel overwhelmed by it but there's also a kind of badge of honor to it and there's a huge I mean you know we can go into capitalism and neoliberalism and all of these aspects and what's kind of fueling that but that that kind of counterpoint of you know pride over busyness and shame over unproductivity Mm -hmm. or loneliness or grief or kind of you know or it's seen as something that you're supposed to be able to get over yourself and I was really interested you know even in smaller levels of grief you know when people talk about you know breakups or losing jobs or all of these things it's not a society that that wants to talk or spend much time on that loss and actually like dealing with it it's all about moving on quickly getting over that you know you've got tinder you've got dating apps you've got um online job searches you've got so much at your fingertips of disposal you know sort of abilities to gain stuff that that to say I need to pause or I need time just feels still. And I think it's actually becoming somewhat changing over this time during COVID where you've had a, suddenly had people on a more mass scale feeling that kind of grief and loneliness and overwhelm.
1: And more um, prepared to talk about it openly, do you think?
2: Prepared. Yeah, I think that's something that's, that's been quite incredible and, and having this book coming out during that time when people are actually open to those questions Um, But even at the time that I was writing it, sort of a few years ago, it still felt like those were things you shouldn't necessarily talk aloud with others.
1: Let's talk now about racism, another major concern of the book. We see many, many incidents of casual racism in the book, as well as um, outright racism. The one I wanted to ask you about is this. The narrator goes and meets up with another young woman of colour who is also a freelance journalist like she is. And they've both been asked to write about growing up in Australia. And they both say what that means actually is a euphemism for can you write about what it's like to grow up in Australia as a young uh, woman of colour. They're both unnamed. So how does the woman who's not the narrator feel about being asked to write that article?
2: I think the other woman, so she's from Mogadishu, um, African, Australian, and she's got anger and fire in her belly about it. And, and that can be such a motivating, important force, you know, sometimes to have as well, to actually get you to do something about it. And she's got a lot of sort of a lot more academic and, and clearer theories around, you know, othering in this country and why it's important to, to speak out and be a voice, but also, you know, she's sassy and she sees exactly what's happening from a media perspective around, you know, how this is going to be clickbait, how media very much um, kind of internalises its own racism how you can sort of be caught into positions of being, you know, the person who's who's has to speak on behalf of people of mm-hmm. color, um, and either you become this kind of token representative or you get put as a kind of, you know, this is an opinion piece. So it's not actually factual or correct in any way. Um, and so she's kind of she's she's quite scathing and able to cut down sort of what's actually the the power plays. Um, but I think. One of the things I really wanted with the narrator, again, with grief, is it's such an engulfing sense of apathy as well it can create. And that fire in her belly has sort of gone out. So she's passively listening to a lot of people who are, who are fired up and fueled by injustice. And all she can think about really is her own loss.
1: I want to go back to the young woman from Mogadishu and one of the things she says. She says, the thing I'm most scared to talk publicly about in this country is race. I'd rather talk about being a sex worker or casual work, anything other than race. Why does she say that, Kavita? What happens here in Australia if a person of colour talks about race?
2: Well, I think a lot of those things, I think it can still be rather taboo. Um, A lot of the issues comes, you know, historically around, you know, I think just not having a vocabulary to really talk about it, it feels often as if you've got to have the discussion from the beginning of, do we even have a problem around racism? And that is an incredibly tedious and boring uh, thing to keep discussing. And it feels like you can't actually get into the nuance of any real debate. Um, There are many levels to this that are much more interesting. And if we use that as a kind of baseline, meaning, yes, we do have a problem with racism in this country, then perhaps we can actually have a more sophisticated and interesting and encompassing conversation about where to go from there or even unpacking some of those issues. But to be continually called upon to then just stand in front of people and have to be a kind of, um, you know, question and as people sort of flog you to say, we don't have a problem, um, you end up becoming this kind of decoy to the whole thing. And um, I think that's incredibly frustrating and hurtful. Um, And it feels like a waste of a lot of people's intellect and time.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Sydney itself. It seems to me you write about Sydney with ambivalence. You write about the beauty of Sydney, Bondi Beach, the jacaranda trees, but also the dark side. So at one point, the narrator says it is beautiful, but it looks fake. At another point, it's not a city where you can easily make a friend. Something else that you focus on is this idea, and I think you referred to it earlier, of Sydney as segregated. Um, and at one point, the you the narrator says, Sydney doesn't have a centre, it's a series of enclaves. Sydney scientists do not have a holistic sense of the place we inhabit, it is a segregated city. Would you like to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a fascinating city in so many ways. Um, I think there is definitely the sense of architecturally how it's been designed. Um, where, you know, even sort of Parramatta, which is now again being retutored as the center of the city and was once considered the center. Um, but a lot of people with the sort of government out there, you know, hear a lot of complaints even then about going out that way. Um, it's not a city that just by transportation, you know, it's it's cut up by so many waterways. Um, so I have it as well. Like we all have it, you know, to actually get from one end of the city to another take can take hours. Um, When a friend moves you, when a friend moves to the other side of the bridge or a friend moves to another area, you end up kind of mourning them because you're like, okay, well, that goes seeing them. Um, So it, it already is built into the city. It's not always sort of, you know, the mentality, but of course, how a city is is kind of formed and it's, its architecture also then comes into forming the being and the, the mindset around it. Um, and I think those kinds of ways where it's become rather pocketed in many ways, where people don't necessarily um, meet up. I feel like it's so interesting where you, it's a city where you hear about the other side of the city via the news, not via conversation or going there necessarily.
1: you make the point that that has been, if anything, accentuated by the last three months of lockdown in Sydney. The city has become more and more um, segregated, I guess.
2: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are feeling actually that it's just mirroring what was already there. It's just now out in the open Mm. (laughs) in many ways. And I think it is a really, you know, when you do have even sort of using the kind of, lockdown if you will as as an example I mean obviously that's not in the book but it is a kind of there's not a unifying necessarily sense of this city even the way that we treat its inhabitants and the way that we you know as a city coming together or dealing with adversity is it's not always together it's often done in very segregated or different ways or there's one rule for one group of people etc and yeah I was interested then if how do you then create a sense of belonging? Um, is it to your kind of tribe? Mm. Is it to your area? Um, is it to what what actually forms that holistic sense that many other cities have? Mm. Um, and it's something you know. I've also heard it a lot from from when I was sort of younger, even growing up, a lot of people in kind of arts and, and, you know, literature and and kind of more creative fields as well, really moaning, bemoaning that as well because it's quite hard to get involved in the centre of something that's happening. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, a lot of the stuff that's being done in the CBD now is, is really beautiful and, and things are changing again. But it's often not felt like a city where you know where to go and everyone will be there <laughs> that does that mm. thing. It doesn't have that kind of central hub. Um, There might be a central hub in your area and then people from that area go there. And as a result, I was, again, really interested in, well, then what perspectives are being told and being heard about this city or about this place? Um, And when I sometimes spoke to people from overseas or, or from other cities, sometimes I had a completely different narrative at play about the city than another person might have. Um, so, yeah, I was interested in how place and, and segregation and these kinds of themes actually come into a sense of belonging.
1: Kavita, I just have one final question for you. When you were writing this book, you said that you thought carefully about the differences about writing on place as an outsider versus an insider and the challenges of othering and familiarity. And I wondered how you saw yourself. You were born in Sydney you grew up here, you've lived a lot of your life here. Do you see yourself as an outsider or as an insider?
2: Mm, you know, I think I, as a lot of people do write their way into understanding as well um and I think also it being a kind of first novel um it was a huge part of me trying to actually grapple and tackle that exact issue for myself um and I was trying to understand to what do I owe this city <laughs> um uh, to what extent does it hold me when sometimes I felt like it didn't um, and to what extent, yeah, like is there kind of love and roots in this in this place? And I think through writing it, it really actually helped me feel like I belonged a bit more um, and felt like I was part of the fabric and the, the estuaries and the waterways and I think just that sense of place. Um, being just so imbued in my own being is was a really beautiful thing to come out of this whole exercise as well. Well,
1: that's a really wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for participating in this collaboration between Byron Writers Festival and Books, Books, Books. I wish we'd been able to speak in person, but I look forward to the day when we can meet in person. And um, I congratulate you on the great success your book has had already. And I wish you the very best for it, for the um, for the time to come. Thank, Thank you, Kavita. Thank so
2: much. It was an absolute pleasure. And thanks to Byron Bay as well. Thank
1: you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books 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 a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations please visit byronwritersfestival.com.